I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi listeners, Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon, or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Courtney. (laughs) Dang it. I was waiting for you to go because I was like, hold on, we had this conversation and we both waited and then we both went for it at the same time. (laughs) Uh, How are you today? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Um, My brain's a little mushy, but you know. Yeah, same. I feel like that's the state of most people is brain mush. Just living is tiring. Yeah. But I am really, really excited about our episode today. Same. Yeah, I'm also really excited. What is our episode about? Today, we are joined by Evelyn Skye, author of the new book out August 1st. So by the time this episode airs, it came out yesterday for everybody who is listening on the day this episode premieres. The Hundred Loves of Juliet. The Hundred Loves of Juliet is a modern reimagining of Romeo and Juliet with a twist. Romeo has been cursed to live forever, Juliet to reincarnate and die soon after they meet. Sometimes they only have minutes together, sometimes they have years, but she always, no matter what they do to prevent it, perishes. Told in alternating dual perspectives, this novel, according to Jody Picot, quote, cleverly imagines the epilogue the lovers didn't get to have and how curses can be blessings in disguise, unquote. 
Evelyn Skye is the New York Times bestselling author of eight novels, including The Crown's Game. A graduate of Stanford University and Harvard Law School, Skye lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her husband and daughter. And you can follow her on Instagram at Evelyn underscore Skye or visit her website, EvelynSkye.com for more updates. Evelyn's publisher was was um, nice enough to send us some advanced reader copies of this novel. So we both did get to read it before interviewing Evelyn and we both really enjoyed it. I would say for fans of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue and like historical fiction, some light romance, it's really, really fun. Yeah, it's a delightful read. Lots of great history, lots of great philosophy Lots of big life questions in the midst of some really fun characters and some little nuggets for Shakespeare nerds as well. Yeah, there was a moment where I couldn't stop reading it. I don't know about you. I had to keep turning the page to learn what was going to happen. Yes, you can sit and binge read it. So enjoy our conversation with Evelyn Skye. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Elise. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Evelyn. Thank you so much for having me today. We're so excited to have you. So the first question we ask all of our guests is, what was your first encounter with Shakespeare? So sophomore year in high school, Miss Purcell's British literature class. And that was, you know, the typical Jane Austen, Tess of the Durbervilles, which I admit I didn't actually read. And I read the cliff notes. So I apologize, Miss Purcell. And then Hamlet and Macbeth were the two Shakespeare plays that we read. And she just had this great way of making kids love really old literature because she let us read the plays as they were, but then remake them as our own. And so I remember with Hamlet, I wrote, it was a group project and I was the lead. And I said, let's do Hamlet with vampires because at the time I was super in love with Anne Rice's interview with a vampire. And so we did Hamlet with vampires. We chose one scene we rewrote it and then we performed it for the class at a park nearby on the play structure so that will forever be in my head and that's that's really how I fell in love with Shakespeare wow that's so cool and it's so interesting that like your first experience with Shakespeare was adapting and putting your own spin on his stories I think it's actually a really great way for kids to learn. And obviously now it's kind of come full circle because I have now adapted and put my own spin on another of his stories. Yeah, that leads me to my next question, which is as the title of your novel, The Hundred Loves of Juliet suggests, your novel is based on the story of Romeo and Juliet. What was your process for adapting Shakespeare's story into your own? So what I wanted to do was take what is considered one of the most epic love stories of all time, but change it because people idolize this story and yet it's so sad. And yes, it's a tragedy, but I started asking myself, what if Shakespeare got it wrong? And this actually wasn't Shakespeare's original story, right? Like Romeo and Juliet, this core story had been told by other storytellers and that he was the one who made it the most famous. But with that in mind, I decided I was going to take Romeo and Juliet and use Shakespeare's version as like a jumping off point, kind of like if you imagine in the comic book world, this is their origin story. So Shakespeare's version is their origin story. But let's say he didn't quite get everything right because he actually wrote the story, um, like I think I believe a couple centuries after he claimed Romeo and Juliet happened. 
But I, I wanted to, as taking this as a jumping off point, one of the things I wanted to be able to change was how old Romeo and Juliet were in the story, because I think that's a sticking point for a lot of readers in modern day. They really hate that she was 13. And it's unclear exactly how old he was, but he was probably somewhere between 17 and 19. So I wanted to change that and just age them up and say, let's say that they are full-fledged adults as they would have been in their time in the late 14th century. And then think about, well, what is the difference between how the original Romeo and Juliet started as idealistic young characters and then if in this version, in The Hundred Loves of Juliet, Romeo never died. So he's immortal. So he's been now alive for seven centuries and Juliet keeps being reincarnated over and over. So what has life taught them? You know, how would they act now that they know so much more? And yet how can I still retain the core personalities of Romeo and Juliet to keep true to that story, especially since Romeo, who in this current life is Sebastian Montague, he's really still the same guy. So that was really interesting for me to have that literary inspiration, but then be able to follow it through just thinking about humans in general. You know, how does a person develop? What is life like if you find your soulmate and then you suffer the loss of them? How does that shape you as a person, you know? And so that's that's kind of how the story started. That's how I began thinking about what used to be called the Montague curse and is now the hundred loves of Juliet. So speaking of your process, what for you was the most enjoyable part of making a Shakespeare play your own? And then what was the most challenging part? So one thing, one big question was how closely was I going to stick to the original inspiration? So Shakespeare's play. And one of the first things I thought of was Obviously, the Montagues and the Capulets were in conflict with each other, but even within the Capulet family, Juliet didn't really have much support. Her father was about to marry her off to someone, and that, that was typical of the time. Um, her mother wasn't really doing anything to help her. The only one who was in her corner was the nurse. And so because this is a modern day take on it, I wanted to give Helene, who is the reincarnation in modern day of Juliet, a supportive family instead of an oppositional one. And then for Sebastian, he has no blood relations because he's been alive for seven centuries. So instead, what this version of Romeo does is he has found family. And so his best friend, Adam, and the rest of his King Crab fishing crew, that is his family, like his friends in every lifetime. Sebastian built his own new Montagues, basically. So that was one, one thing I wanted to change. The other thing I wanted to make sure I carried through were the different themes in Romeo and Juliet while adapting them to the new story. So for me, one of the main themes in Romeo and Juliet is passion. And that shows itself both in the form of love and also in hate, right? Because the Montagues and Capulets, I mean, they're, they're literally killing each other over this family feud. And yet at the same time, it's the love that is the undercurrent of the entire story. So in Shakespeare's play, this drives the narrative and it leaves us at the end with the question of does love or hate win, right? And we're not actually clear because he just closes on the two families being devastated, but what happens next, right? So I wanted to carry that theme of passion through all of the centuries with Sebastian, with Romeo, all of his different, the different lives, the different names he takes on, and then all the reincarnations with Juliet. And I think in The Hundred Loves of Juliet, this passion shows up 
partially as the curse, right? The curse itself, the fact that Romeo can never die. He tries to die and he can't, you know, he tries to basically dehydrate himself, but no matter what, an old lady will show, will show up with a cup of water and offer it to him, or he'll try to drown, but he floats. And so this is his curse. And then for her, she keeps being reincarnated. They fall in love, but then she dies again, right? So is this actually passion just, you know, in a, in a sense, reincarnated as the curse, this, this continuation of the duality of love and loss, right? And does the pain that the characters experience in every lifetime, is it different or is it the same? So I wanted to develop that over time and carry that passion through, through this version of Romeo and Juliet. Then another theme I felt like in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is the loyalty of love. So in Shakespeare, the characters had to fight against their families in order to remain loyal to love. But then in The Hundred Loves of Juliet, I took that same idea, except I changed it a little bit because now they have supportive families or found families, right? So instead, in order to fight for love, they have to fight against time and fate. So that was like another way that I thought it was still true to the original story, but a new interpretation of it. And then I think finally is fate. So soulmates, fated lovers, is this actually the destiny of the Capulets and Montagues through all time? And I wanted to have the reader think about whether it was better to fight fate or whether to accept it. And is it better to accept the love that arrives with it in whatever form, even if it's not perfect? Wow, thank you. I love hearing like the questions that you were asking yourself as you were writing this in the rabbit holes almost, it sounds like that you went down in figuring out what your story was going to be. I want to get into more parallels because you brought up the parallel between the grudge and the curse. I was like, there's a parallel of like this ancient grudge that in Shakespeare's play that nobody knows the origin of. And then in your story, there is this now ancient curse that they can't quite pinpoint what caused it. We're going to save some of that parallel conversation for the second half of our conversation, which will be out on Patreon and be uh, more spoiler laden. So continuing to talk about some of the decisions that you were making for your book and some of the questions you were asking yourself, I personally believe that Shakespeare's titles are very purposeful. So for example, this is the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. It is about both of them. Or we have the tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. It's about the fact that he is the Prince of Denmark, not just this guy or the King Hamlet, right? Your characters, Sebastian and Helene, discuss their favorite titles of books. Do you have a favorite title of a book? The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Because you just have to ask yourself, what is that half death? And I believe that in the UK, where the book was originally published, it was only the seven deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. I might be wrong, but I read that somewhere. And then when they published it in the US, the publisher here decided as a publicity spin to put the half on there. And it's just, it's so tantalizing to me. I can't not know. That is a really good title. I found myself also um, agreeing with some of the titles that Sebastian and Helene came up with. I was like, yeah, I also love The Seven Husbands of of Evelyn Hugo as a title. That is such an interesting title. Definitely. And actually, it's really funny that there's two titles now with Seven and Evelyn in them, and I get them yes. confused sometimes. <laughs> but I, you know, I agree with Shakespeare in terms of titling. My favorite Shakespeare title is Much Ado About Nothing, because it's just, it's, there's something about it that's so catchy, and it's so witty, and it tells you so much already about the play without giving too much away. And for me personally, for my books, 
I try to do that. So almost all of my books have followed that, not all of them, but I figured with the hundred loves of Juliet, it gives you a flavor of the story. And also if someone walks into a bookstore and they don't remember the title, they can say, you know, that one about Juliet and a hundred or something and it's blue, but also my other titles, like the crowns game, it was about two magicians who were fighting basically for the crown in a game. It was a duel. And I had another one that was three kisses, one midnight. So I really like how Shakespeare titles his plays. It feels like the right vibe for me. You also magically answered, um, I think, one of the questions that I was like, oh, I'll save it if it comes up in conversation. Um, but it's not what I'm going to plan to ask, which is how you come up with your, t- how you think of your titles and oh, yeah. almost like what comes first. You mentioned that this was originally like in your head, like the Montague curse, and then it became the hundred loves of Juliet. And I was just wondering like, where in your process do you, is it different with every book? You know, does sometimes the story come first or the title come first? What's that like for you? So for me, for writing, usually what happens is the first line comes first. It's always the first sentence and it sets the ambiance for the story. And ambiance is so important to me. And then the characters start coming. And at some point, a title comes. I am notoriously bad at titles, believe it or not. Even though I say, oh, I have this theory about what my title should be, I'm usually sort of close, but then my publisher has to help me. It's like putting a painting on the wall and I put it up and they say, okay, but let's move it like an inch to the left. So for my very first book, it was originally called The Tsar's Game, but then they changed it to The Crown's Game. And I thought that one little change is so much better. But for this one, magically, because I know that I'm bad with titles, I said, hey, it's called The Hundred Loves of Juliet for now, but feel free to change it if you want, because you know I'm bad at this. And they said, no, it's perfect. We're going to keep that. Like they could already imagine what the cover would look like just because it was such a strong title and they thought it was memorable. So I actually did well this time (laughs) with the title. Yeah. And with the cover, with all the stars, the star crossed, there's a lot of intention. I think that helps adequately set the reader up for success in this book during the reading session. Yes. And I was told there are 100 stars on the cover to correlate with the title 100 Loves, The 100 Loves. I haven't counted, but my daughter has said she is going to be on a mission. She's going to take a picture of it and then cross out each star as she counts them. (laughs) Well, thank goodness for your daughter. But that's also such an amazing detail by your publishing team. Like, wow, like whoever thought of that was really clever. I know. I am so lucky. I've always had the best cover artists, and I think they just knocked it out of the park this time. And the interesting thing is that when this book is being published in other territories, the covers are different. So the cover in the UK, it's dark blue and there are rose vines kind of crawling all over the cover. And it's so deeply lush and romantic. And then the Spanish version is completely different. They ended up playing with something that looks more like an old fashioned watch on the cover. Mm. Oh, okay. And with like this big ribbon that kind of evokes time travel. So it's really interesting. And I don't know what the Italian cover is yet, but I'm going to be super excited to see that one. Yeah. So excited. That is so cool. You mentioned your daughter and I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the inspiration behind Sebastian and Helene is your own love story. Would you like to share some of that story with us and how it inspired the creation of this book? So the idea for this book came to me years ago, and I knew that I wanted Romeo to live forever and for Juliet to be reincarnated, but that was basically all I had. And I knew at that time that the story was still missing something crucial, and so I set the idea aside. And then 
the solution came, unfortunately, with a very sad turn in my life, which is that my husband, who I had only been married to at that point for 10 months, he was diagnosed with a really rare disease that we have since found out is caused by a genetic mutation that only three other people in the world have ever been diagnosed with. And those people are all in the same family. So he's literally like number two that has been documented. Wow. Yeah. And so what happened was this uh, genetic mutation, it causes something called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which has multiple other causes as well. But in this case, it was this genetic mutation and it changes your healthy lung tissue into scar tissue. So imagine that your lungs are turning into stone. Any part that is scar tissue is like stone, it can no longer bring in oxygen so your lungs stop functioning. So he progressed very quickly from diagnosis to his lungs completely failing. Um, so within a few months, he was in the hospital and he was on life support and it was basically terminal unless he could get a lung transplant. So he was on the most advanced life support that there is where they take all of the blood out of your body, put it through a machine, which puts oxygen into the blood and then puts the blood back into your body. And literally he probably only had a couple more, more days. The doctors didn't tell us until after that he only had a couple more days, but we got the call for an organ match and thank God, a successful lung transplant. And so for me and for my husband, that was basically his second chance at life, right? That was his reincarnation. And so that slotted in all of a sudden, I understood what was missing from Romeo and Juliet, Sebastian and Helene's story was this true feeling of loss, right? Like this is what Romeo and Juliet had to go through when they lost each other. And this incredible love that I have for my husband, we still live kind of Sebastian's fear every day. Sebastian is afraid of losing Helene because he keeps losing every Juliet. And so even when he finds her, he's partially imagining the future already without her. And for lung transplant, organ rejection is always a problem for any organ transplant. And then lung transplants are especially fragile because you're breathing in the outside environment with every single breath. So obviously the pandemic was very scary for us. And even now, Anytime I travel somewhere to speak at book festivals or I go to comic cons where I'm in a convention center with 150,000 people, I come back and I quarantine for a couple of days just to make sure that I'm not carrying anything. It, it might not be COVID. It might just be a simple cold can easily turn into pneumonia for him and put him in the hospital. So we definitely live with that fear of life being shortened. But I think asking yourself that question, how do you live when you know how do you love when you know that someone's time is short? It helps you live in the present. And what is key, I think for me, I am such an optimist. And so it has helped us love each other better. And I think that that is Helene's perspective in the story. She is the optimist and the part of Helene that sees the silver lining in everything. That is me. And that is her saying, okay, we can deal with this thing. I don't believe in this tragedy. We're going to change it. And then the part of Sebastian, who's been through hundreds of years of losing her, he's scared. You know, he feels that real rawness of, I love you. And I'm afraid I'm going to lose you again. I know I'm going to lose you again. So that is the basis of this story. I got through it without crying. So that's a small victory for today. Thank you so much for your sharing your story with us and our listeners. Personally, as somebody who has experienced loss in my life, I think that you do a wonderful job of sharing both parts of it, the like fear and also the lesson of like, 
of loving who you love while you have them because nothing's guaranteed. Um, I think that that is such a beautiful thread through this story. And I think that's really deftly done. So thank you for sharing it with us, both well, both of your stories, I should say. No, thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> I wish no one had to suffer through these kinds of things, but I hope that this story is a solace for readers who have experienced it or, you know, just, I don't know, something to take with them for the future. Yeah. It has been such a joy to one, read your book and to get to meet you today. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun and I adore your podcast. I've listened to other episodes and you are just both so smart and I learn so much with every episode. So it's really an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. I love it. Like three history nerds. I know. Yeah. <laughs> three very kindred spirits in the room mm-hmm. tonight. And that is just the first half of our conversation with Evelyn Skye. Later this month, we are going to be releasing the other half, which is going to be more spoilery. Um, we're going to talk about plot points and things that happen in the novel with Evelyn and go into more detail. That is going to be released later this month on our Patreon. Think of it like a Shakespeare Anyone book club. So if you would like to join us for some Shakespeare Anyone audio book club, you'll have time to purchase the book from your local bookstore or borrow it from your local library, read it, and join us on Patreon. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks and thanks and ever thanks to our Patreon patron, Doug Mertz, and thanks to Vivian for their increased pledge. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 5, said by Hamlet, There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy.